Hello and welcome to the Life on This Podcast. Uh, how's it going? What's up with you today? Uh, for me, I have mostly been trying to desperately maintain my core body temperature below sort of overheating levels. I've had my feet in ice cold buckets of water because I'm just a slender, pale Britishman in hot, hot heat. So no matter where you are, I hope you're doing well. Today, we've got an awesome interview for you. It is a guy called Kai. Kai's the guy. And wanted to interview him because he's a stoic philosopher who I've you know, read his stuff online. Uh, he's a lecturer at Louvain University. He's a sustainability campaigner, was an environmental engineer, and he's an author. Uh, he wrote a book called Being Better, uh, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. And so that is, uh, if you're unfamiliar with stoicism, just a really vital set of tools uh, with a really deep philosophy which enables you to go maybe have a bit of detachment from life but not in a way which reduces it but in a way which allows you to sort of be able to deal with it better so that's vital and yet the conversation got even better because at the start which I tell you what, I'm going to let you discover what I learned about him at the start of the convo, but it suddenly meant it went in a direction which was totally on brand for the Lifefulness podcast because Lifefulness is all about trying to see how you can go and learn from spiritual practices, spiritual traditions, and do it in a way which is secular and scientific and inclusive. So if you're religious, you know, we're speaking a language. If you're non-religious, you know, you know you're not going to go and get a uh, crystally nonsense in here. But this was uh, wonderful. Apologies to the big believers in crystally nonsense. Uh, we also value your ears. And if this conversation is the sort of thing which you love, then we've got an online community where we go and discuss these uh, questions. We then are planning on going to like turn that online community into real world community. So go and check out lifefulness.io forward slash membership for more info and follow us uh, on social media. I'm Sanderson Jones. Find me on Twitter uh, and various other places. And now it's time to get out of the way to have uh, more of this Kai guy because yeah, this convo was great and oh, there's a little there's a little revelation at the start. Uh, I loved it when I discovered it. I think you'll love it too. So hello Kai, how are you? Where are you? I'm actually in Lisbon, so it's it's really hard at the moment in Lisbon because of COVID. We are the numbers are climbing and it's problematic and we were in lockdown at the weekends. I'm okay. I'm perfectly fine, but it's not the best place to live right now. Uh, the UK, on the other hand, is opening up. So I'm, I'm like, well, I'm, t I'm not traveling to visit. Well, as you can see from my accent, I'm not from Lisbon originally. But I feel that until I've had uh, the vaccination, I shouldn't travel um, unless it was absolutely urgent. Um, but we're behind on the, on the vaccinations, as people know from the EU, the EU's travels. So it, it, for me, it's it's a good way to practice stoicism, I guess. Uh, what's in your control, what's not. Uh, I'm hoping to get to the UK soon enough because my mum is going to have her birthday party. And she never says she wants to be there directly, but she drops hints every every time we speak is a little hint. So I'm like, you really want me there? She's like, I never said that, but you don't have to say it like that. But you do, yeah. She never says it directly. <laughs> you can say things without saying things. There are many ways for a mum to go, 
oh no 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 it'll be it'll be fine and you're like oh yeah that that means not fine that means very <laughs> not fine exactly the first question we always ask our guests is what was the spiritual religious philosophical background to your childhood what made you you that's a really interesting question but i don't think uh in terms of like childhood yeah um i don't think it's as interesting as say my adulthood so now i am muslim i was at a mosque quite often until COVID happened. So that's been quite challenging. Ramadan was particularly hard. I don't know if I'm the first Muslim guest on your show. No, 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 no. <laughs> you, I'm going to say that is a look of surprise because I didn't know you're a Muslim. You are a Stoic philosopher. Where were you brought up, by the way? Um, so I was born in Harrow and then brought up in uh, Leighton. I'm a Leighton Orient supporter, actually. So I've moved to Leighton. I'm just going to say, I was beating around the bush. You're also white. It's unusual. It's Not unusual. the classic Pantone no. uh, vibe. So, but you you became a Muslim later in life. Yeah, I, I worked in the I worked in the UAE, and I heard. I mean, I've never publicly really stated it, but as you asking for a very sincere question, and I asked, you know, you've told me about bit about the wouldn't. So yeah, I, I just heard the call to pray and I was like, what is that? And they're like, oh, they're calling you to pray. I was like, they're calling us to pray? They're like, yeah, you get called. I was like, well, you just drop everything and you, you just go? Uh, they're like, well, yeah, <laughs> as if I'd ask a really silly question. And I just found that really interesting. And I, I just thought that being called to do something, even if it wasn't convenient to you and to literally put one's head on the floor is a very different situation. Um, I guess I'm not particularly like, because it's not my cultural background, I guess I don't have some of the trappings. I prefer like the, the Sufi walk. I'm not very pro the sort of rules and regulations just because they're rules and regulations. I prefer to say, okay, there's a structure. What does that structure call us to do? So yeah, do I grow a beard? Yes, I, I see it as part of, part of the, you know, part of the identity as such. Like people often think like it's an Amish beard, but normally I don't have a moustache. But I'm not very much, you know, pro people saying, saying to others what they should wear, what they should do. I've critiqued that concept when, uh, for example, uh, men tell women what to wear. I'm like, get your own journey sorted out. Like, you're not, for example, when I was in the UAE, we were, you know, you're covered from head to toe as a man. Your hands are shown, your, your feet are, your hat, you know, but you also, have, you know, your face is showing, but you have a beard. So if you think how big, big your beard can get, uh, a lot of your face isn't shown, actually. So I find it really, I find it really sort of ironic when people go around telling other people's wives, sisters, friends, mothers what to do, and they're walking around like in a pair of Adidas, you know, t-shirt and slightly longer shorts. I'm like, well, you're not exactly living what you call the Muslim lifestyle, what you actually seem to say it is, and yet you're demanding others, and I find that very frustrating. So I'm not going to say that it's a perfect, you know, it's, there's nothing, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who go, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Muslim community. We have no responsibility for everything. I actually get really frustrated when you have this sort of relativism where you say, oh, well, we shouldn't hold people to the same standards. So I think about like the Batley, I think it's the how you pronounce it, Batley Grammar School. It really, I find it very disappointing, actually, that we say, oh, we can't hold those people to those standards. If those individuals involved who were screaming, Quite aggressively, I would say, outside of school gates were Christians. I think we would have had an entirely different debate. And then you say, well, why are we holding you know, Muslims to a lesser standard? Would you hold me to a lesser standard of, of what's, what's acceptable in public? And I think the answer would be no. And they say, yeah, but that's different. And I'm like, why is that different? Because I'm Muslim too, right? 
Mm. And then they'd have to answer a very awkward question. And we don't need to say what that question would be here, but you would know they would like, well, that would be different. Yeah. Why? I mean, they were born in Leicester. <laughs> mm. I was born in Harrow. Is that the difference? Is that the difference you're trying to tell me about? So I do get frustrated that uh, in the you know in the UK, and it's not such a problem in the US, but in the UK particularly, there seems to be this distinction about what standards we should hold each other to, uh, which was very refreshing when I was uh, working with the uh, Islamic community in the US. That you your standard is to be American. That's the standard, which America has always done for good and bad. There are bad things throughout. I'm not going to say that that's the best way always to go about something but uh, i can see there are benefits by having this is the american standard you can be whatever religion you want but there's an american standard and the uk for whatever reason we haven't chose to do that so i think that's probably more interesting than my childhood i don't know it was a really long Nate, this is exactly the place to have those sorts of discussions and those sorts of answers. That is truly fascinating. And uh, one thing which sprang to mind is just in these discussions around, you know, it, it can end up being really simplistic of like, it's Christianity or Islam, you wouldn't say that about Christianity. Well, you know what, I, I would uh, about this, but I wouldn't be saying holding all Christianity to that standard. So I often think that a lot of things would be simplified. If people said Christianities, or Islams, because there are so many different variants. Like you, you're not saying all of Islam is this. It's like, no, there's a very specific type which has got certain types of behaviors which are not, you know, ideal in the UK. Though I think there are like some obviously differences in that the, and that might be the thing when you're held to the standard in the UK versus, you know, Islam in other places, because then we get onto you know, sort of like an anthropological view of the world. Like you're not going to look at the Yamamoto tribe in the uh, in the Amazon and go, put some clothes on, mate, because that that would be weird. So there is there's lots of gray areas in there. It's a fascinating thing. And I can really like I've, I think there's something really powerful about structure. And I think there's this idea in the West, an idea in our culture that, you know, structure is, uh, you know, holds people back. It's an imposition. It's a real misunderstanding of what you benefit from having something which says, oh, no, Allah is the most important thing in the world. So, you know what? Nothing like no matter what we're doing now, is it more important than the thing which is most important in your life? By definition, no. So go and get your head down there. Like, what's it like when you go and sort of pray five times a day? How does it go and reorient you to the rest of your life? That's a really good question. I, I, I say to people, when you start to live according to the to the so you know the, the the cycle of the sun in a day, right? If you don't have a watch on, right, which or you don't have a phone, because none of us wear watches these days, then you start to think about the world completely differently. Time is, is different. Like when you speak to, if you're a Muslim and you speak to another Muslim, you can say to them, I'll meet you after Maghrib, which is the sunset prayer. And they know roughly when you're going to meet them. You don't necessarily have to say an hour. And that's a really interesting thing, to me at least. And to think, think like, okay, why, why do, you know, why is like two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock any better than a different a different way of seeing time um so and also you've got the lunar cycle so you're like okay i'm not you know because ramadan is running okay did i can can we see the moon has the moon been reported yes okay now we're, we're going to fast and then wait until the moon you know the moon is sighted again and that's really to me that's very interesting because we've lost that we've, we've lost the connection with nature which is why uh islam is very important to me because i that's what i 
I didn't, I don't feel happens in many other congregations. I'm not going to say that Muslims are particularly brilliant at remembering their roots because some of them are really not. Um, but I, for example, I really love Cambridge Eco Mosque. I don't know if you've ever been, Sanderson, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have never been to Cambridge Eco Mosque, but yeah, it's exactly, you, you, sounds exactly the sort of place that I would love. They, did, they used to do a really good guided tour. So I wrote about that in the book, the book I call for being better, Stoism for a World Worth Living In, because the idea is like, what should I do for the planet? Well, you're a Muslim. Where do you spend a lot of time if you're a man? Where do you happen to spend a lot of time in a mosque? Then make your mosque an eco mosque. To me, that is a spiritual practice, regardless of what label you want to put on it. Like you, you can be a Christian and you build a church. And that's what we've lost. I really believe that because we're saying, okay, let me recycle more. It's like, is recycling your thing? Like, is that what you do most? Whatever you do most in a day, do that well. Do that with you know, a conscious connection to the world, whether you're secular or not. And so I thought that was a really good example of, you know, that was for me, stoicism and practice to use your reason to go, what do I do the most? So when I've done some consultancy work as um, I'm an environmental engineer, people often say, oh, should we get recycling paper, recycled paper for our printers? Mm. I'm like you're a bus company. This is, this, is, this is an actual example. You're a bus company. Why don't you make your buses more efficient, like more, you know, run more environmentally consciously? Why are we talking about office paper? How many of your staff work in the office? Oh, we have, you know, Five, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and how many people? How many people drive a bus on it in a one day? Oh, about twenty-five, right? So, like, you've got twenty, you know, or thirty, or a hundred, or whatever it is, right? You've got twenty, you know, they're they're doing that for eight hours a day. Is is your office worker printing eight hours a day? No. Then why are we focusing? Why are we spending money on that when the drivers? There's more drivers, and they're driving or parking, but they're using the vehicle maybe seven and a half hours or an eight hour day. So why are we spending money on something so trivial? That's where the that's the challenge. The cynical part of me is like, because oh, it's a lot easier than making our buses ecological. I, that point you make about whatever it is that you do to go and find, do it more intentionally, to go and find the meaning, because I think that is just such a powerful way of looking at a spiritual practice. Because if you go and look at all of these different religions, movements, spiritual communities, traditions, you know, you, you've got people who do like sacred cleaning, like it, it literally Islam, like washing your hands can be a sacred act, you know, like doing a garden in a uh, doing a garden in a monastery is a sacred act, like putting sand in, into a pattern, like in a man, mandala, I also said Mandela, in a mandala is a sacred act, but like, really reorienting, like really anything we do can have such a powerful impact on just like our connection to our life. And I'm afraid that this is going to really probably derail our conversation about stoicism uh, or make it very different in a way that I love because it just such a fascinating thing. I, I mean, should it be fascinating? Yes, it is. You don't often meet uh, Muslim converts who are stoic uh, philosophers. One question I've got is, did the call to Islam then also follow on with a sort of call to a sort of theistic understanding of God in the Quranic sense? Well, as you're probably aware, when you think about it, part of the scandal in the grammar school was the fact that you can't have images of you know, facial images, right? So if you think about it, like what the, the solution to that is actually, if you're ever teaching uh, Muslims who are very sensitive to that, 
I'm not one of them, but people are. The easiest way to do that is to block out the face, right? You can literally say, this is the picture and you just do, do a pixelated face and you've solved it. You're still having debate about free speech, which I think is very important. Um, and, you're, and you're putting an image. People say, well, why would you do that? It's free speech. These people are kids. <laughs> if they're over 18, it's a different debate. But I think anybody who said to me, oh, well, free speech is free speech at school. I'm like, what is it now? Like, so with, with our lives, of course it fucking is, you little kids. Yeah, little yeah. Shit. No, yeah. you're not you're yeah. not saying everything you can say at school. Yeah, exactly. The, the point that you've just made, you know, just those words alone means you have to put a little <laughs> a little warning sign, right? But do you now believe in a supernatural God when before you didn't? Because that's I find is an interesting switch, or maybe before you did. Yeah, I had a, yeah, so I had a I think I always believed there was a, a spiritual connection. Certainly, I think we are spiritual beings. I honestly do. Uh, Of course, my interpretation, everybody's, I often say there's like seven or eight billion religions on the planet, right? So, um, but of course, in the the mosque, there, you know, Allah, you see a lot of uh, geometry and you see a lot of patterns, right? And you see the words as well. So it's not so far from the stoic view of God, which is the logos, the essence of the universe being that 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 particular element being at one right so obviously there are elements of islam that are not particularly compatible or not compatible at all with stoicism but i I do feel that there is sort of this people come to stoicism typically there's two ways one they have a personal crisis that is related to death or something along those lines or two they have a religious existential crisis related to they just lost their christianity the problem that happens is that you tend to get from my experience in the, in, with the 88,000 people that belong to the Facebook group, is that you get people who were Christians who suddenly have lost their faith for whatever reason, or it's been weakened, and they're, they're disorientated, and they want me to give them a tick box. This is how to be a stoic. And I know we have books called How to Be a Stoic, so I'm not saying that there's, there's nothing useful with that. Of course there is, but that's not actually how stoicism really works which the author of How to Be a Stoic, Max McAlugy, does is well aware of that. So his book isn't necessarily what I would call traditional stoicism, and he, he would say it himself. But yeah, it's not a tick box thing. Islam, on the other hand, is quite a tick, is much more of a tick box. Right? Like, <laughs> did, you, did you wash your hands in this way? Did you put yeah, your hands yeah, in yeah. this way? So, so yeah, there is, as I said, I, I personally am an unusual Muslim. In the sense that I'm, like, I'm looking at the overall structure. I'm looking at the connection with God. I'm not really into, did I tick the box? just because it's a tick box? Or am I doing this consciously, like you said, am I doing this consciously? Am I doing this out of reverence, right? So I guess, of course, they must have, we all take ourselves into our work. It's a mirror image, right? So the work that you've read of mine, now that I've talked about religion a little bit and my background in environmental work, it's perhaps no surprise to you that my greatest contribution to Sturston is including the environment. And talking about the historic God in the way that it brings in uh, the care for, for the natural world. Just to like go and give people just a little overview of like stoicism isn't a sort of tick box exercise. You know, there's that sort of like, like what is stoicism? I know you could sort of talk for seven hours on that, but like your little introductory, uh, like what does it mean to live a stoic life? So the, sto- the stoics talked about the fact that there's an art of living. So that's why it's not, it's an, it's an art. With art. If you are an artist, the thing you hate the most probably is to be told what art to, 
to draw and to be not when you're training, obviously not when you, you know you because you but you still have that expression. So okay, if I have to draw a piece of fruit, which fruit would I like to draw? Especially when you really are, you've really started to master your craft. So they call it the art of living. The idea that there's a canvas for you to paint, right? Obviously, you've got the canvas. There are restrictions. Like life has some restriction. You're not able to paint in the thin air. But the idea of like it in a scientific sort of structured tick box that that doesn't work. Why? That's the key thing you're asking. People. Why? Why isn't stoicism a tick box thing? Because stoicism says that to live a flourishing life, which some people some people translate as happy, because the word is eudaimonia, you need to you need to be the, the best human being you can be. And that is more than the best version of Kai or the best version of Samson, the best human being you can be. So it's basically hashtag living my best life. It's sort of like <laughs> an Instagram little moniker, or is it not that simple? So when people say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to use stoicism to, to increase my salary, how is that living the best, best human life possible? I mean, I don't think that you can answer that question. Well, actually, me earning more money is definitely the best human life possible. On what ground? And then I'll say, oh, it would be, my life would be easier. So the Stokes would say, easier doesn't mean good. Easier means easier. So what do you, now that your life is easier, how does that look on your canvas? What are you going to paint now, right? Because it does create mental, mental capacity to be able to do things. Because instead of being worried about what other people think about you every single day of your life, you're like, okay, that's their opinion. So that we don't care what they think, because people say, oh, it's only about not caring. It's about being stoic for a little s. It's about being like British. Well, no, it's not about not caring what other people think. It's going, I know what Sanderson thinks, and I don't agree with him, and that's fine. Right? At least like looking at what you actually think, seeing where we disagree, and not getting overly emotional about it. But that's different to not caring, right? So now that I I've accepted what you believe, what you believe about me, I've what worked out in a straight way, whether it's true or not, I have mental space that I didn't have before when I was like, I hate Sanderson, he's so mean to me, I can't believe he said that. And we spend as human beings a lot of time saying, I can't believe someone said something to me, I can't believe they talked to me in that way. And the Stokes are like, no, now you don't have that noise. Now you can be the best human being you can be because now instead of focusing on what Sanderson said, didn't say, might have said, you can then promote things that make you a good human being. So what makes you a good human being, right? So it is just to stop you there. It is this idea that you can, a lot of the sort of values that the world might give, give to you, such as caring about other people's opinions, uh, you know, uh, trying to live for it, it, with their values, trying to climb the greasy pole, get power, get a bigger house. Actually, these are not the things which make up a good life. We have, in order to go and sort of resist those temptations, we need to go and practice the art of getting sort of separation from the normal emotional reactions that, you know, we might uh, expect to have from that. It is about having that one degree of separation. It's not about being unemotional because that's not realistic and not, not even reasonable. Stokes say you should live according, you know, according to what is reasonable, what is reason. And to say, oh, okay, my mum just died, but I don't feel anything. How, how, that's, not even, that's not even human. That's not the best human you can be, right? So there's like a joke of going, well, I, I don't feel anything about, you know, my mum died, but that's fine. Oh, your mum died too, but that's great. Like that's, like, that's completely anti what the Stokes would say, right? They'd be like, how is that being the best human you can be?
And so then that's quite interesting because that is an idea that people have. And, you know, you could, if you're living in line with uh, reason, you could say, well, look, my mother was always going to die. Like there'd be that argument. Uh, I think I was listening to Marcus Aurelius's meditations and he's like learning how to deal with the death of your child with equanimity or so that might be one way of looking at it. And like, to my mind, it'd be like, actually, we have also have emotions for a reason. And that if I don't feel grief, then this grief is going to build up inside me in some way so that uh, I need to, I, this is good for me to go and feel these emotions, but that also, you know, that I'm going to have limits to it as well. I'm going to sort of do it as much as is needed in order for me to have a good life. And it isn't that, uh, you know, just going mm, stiff up a lip. Uh, really, we had a great guest uh, on our podcast who who's made the point that literally the stiff up a lip was came from like, if you control your lip from quivering, then you actually sort of stop yourself feeling the fear. And, you know, he said it came from the army and it's like this way of walking into battle. But it also, obviously, if you're not feeling those emotions, it's very, very bad for your health. What are some other, maybe some other misreadings of stoicism then? Like these people might have ideas of like what it means, or, you know, like what are the things you have to battle against? So to use your battle and your, uh, the idea about the army, people think that stoicism is about being, becoming more resilient. And of course, but resilience isn't a stoic thing per se. And it's good to become more resilient, right? But it's not, oh, I, it's not the, you know, the ultimate aim that I want to become more resilient. Because the question Stoics will always ask is, why are you doing this? Oh, I just want to become more disciplined. Well, you, there's many ways to become disciplined. And that doesn't mean that, that you're a better person, right? For example, you can say, well, I won't speak to my wife at all this week. I want to be disciplined in how I feel. You know, I, I'm attached to my wife and I don't want to throw any emotion towards her. So I won't see her any day this week. I'm practicing discipline. Right? So I can imagine a British army person saying that as he prepares himself for battle, like, because I want to separate myself from her. So the Stoics Is that, say, that idea that people used to have in books of like, don't hug your children, they will become weak. And you're like, oh my God. It's like the, like with current ideas is just the worst advice you can have. Exactly. So the Stoic would say, well, actually, what is your role? What is your role? Are you a husband? Yes, then you should come for your wife, right? You should know that, you know, she, she's going to die and that, you know, that she doesn't truly belong to you because Stoics would say everybody belongs to the cosmopolis, right? So knowing that she's going to die and knowing that she doesn't fully belong to you, that should do the opposite. It should make you care for her more because you know that it, she could be taken from you any moment. So when, when the Stoics say, you know, be, you know, you know, be ready for it. That's so what I am ready for it. I do know that, that, you know, my wife's going to die at some point or my husband or whoever is the person that you love. But it's not about not caring for them. It's like, no, so instead of arguing with my wife or my husband all day, every day, I'm going to be like, look, I don't want to argue with you, like unnecessarily, because you and I, we love each other. We're not here to like cause problems. So I don't want to dedicate more time to arguing because that's not very to not building me into becoming a better human being, what can we do instead? So the Stoics will say, so now you're not angry towards your wife because you recognize that she doesn't hate you, even in that moment when you're frustrated, what are you gonna to do together that builds community? So the Stoics are very community focused, like, oh, so instead of arguing with my wife, I'm gonna to speak to my mother-in-law because part of the problem is she says that I don't care about her family, so I know I'm going to listen to her. I'm going to say, yeah, that, you know, I do, but I get that I haven't actually spoken to your mum for like six months. And if that's important to you, because do you see family as speaking to your mum every day, then I will speak to your mum once a week. It's solution-based. It's problem-solving. 
it's not about saying, well, that's too hard for me. It's not, that's out of my control. So one of the big things people say in Stoicism, quote, unquote, is, oh, it's about separating what's in our control and what's not. That's a modern concept that came around in 2008, the dichotomy of control. Epictetus actually called it, what's up to us? What is up to you? So what is this myth? So like this myth is that Stoicism is about knowing what you can control and what you can't control. And in fact, that is not like, that's not sort of uh, original Stoicism, that's a novelty. It's nuanced because this course is 1.1. So literally Stoicism 101, Epictetus says, you know, know what's up to you and what is not up to you, which people translate and know what's in your control and what's not in your control. But if you, tr you can translate it as what corresponds to you and what does not correspond to you, right? Because what's up to you, just, in Spanish, you say, no me corresponde, which means it doesn't literally correspond to me. So somebody might say, why didn't you do this? And I say, no me corresponde. That doesn't mean I don't care. It doesn't mean it's out of my control. It just means it isn't my duty. With, my, with the wife situation, what's my duty as a husband or vice versa? What's my duty? So she's upset. I'm not dismissing her emotions. I'm not saying it's out of my control because obviously it would be, she's a different person on some level, right? And say, well, what can I do? What can I do to bring about harmony, to paint my canvas in a way that is pro-humanity, which is pro the environment, which is pro my wife in this situation? Because as her husband, I do have a responsibility towards her. I do have a responsibility to listen to her and solve that problem. So then what would I do as a stoic? If that's what needs to be done, I would call my mother-in-law once every week on a Friday. It wouldn't, it's not something like that is so difficult for me to do. So that's what the, the Stoicism asks you to do, to say, what is within what's within your power? So people send focus seem to focus on it's not in my power. And it's like, well, it is though, isn't it? There is an element that is. And if it there really isn't, because for example, somebody said to me once, why do you always write about cancel culture recently? Why do you write about that? Um, why can't you write about the Iraq, uh, the war in Syria or the war in, in Yemen? And I was like, I don't know anything about the war in Yemen. I don't know anything about the war in Syria. If I write that, I'm just adding noise. It doesn't correspond to me. It's, it's in my control. I could write about Yemen, but it wouldn't be something that is contributing to what I would call a canvas that is worth painting because it would just be like, why are you saying this? What's your background? What do you know about this? This is something you hear a lot. Stoicism is individualistic and not about community. Is this a myth? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. I, I laugh because it couldn't be further from the truth. Zeno of Citium was the founder of Stoicism and he wrote a book called The Republic. Just by the name alone, without telling you anything about it, what does that suggest? He was interested in what is a good Stoic community. He wasn't interested in what makes a good Stoic. He would not have made, he wouldn't have written the Republic. So his, his Republic is anarchy, basically, but not in, terms of, not in terms of chaos, but in terms of lack of rules. Because Zeno says things like, there's no need to have rules because it always depends. So let me give you an example. As a Stoic, you and I, if we're both Stoic, you and me, we both have the same obligation to do all that we can in a given situation to build community and support each other. So you're saying that now that I'm a Stoic, I've got to go to the mosque like you, right? <laughs> so if oh, yeah. I've understood, if I've understood where this conversation is going, is that right? I think that's a very good tongue-in-cheek question. I mean, <laughs> again, it would, I would love you, uh, love for you to come to the Cambridge Eco Mosque. I mean, I'd love, I'd love that too. Yeah, 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 that'd be great. 
But imagining, let's imagine that you're, are you, are you, do you have a medical background at all? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, okay. I've, I've, though I have gone to doctors. Okay, so that, that's fair enough. But <laughs> if, if, you, if you and I come across a dying man and we're both stoics, and you're a doctor, a medical doctor, and I'm not, you and I have the same moral obligation. We must do all we can to save that man's life because there's no reason in that situation that we're just coming across him in the street to not save his life. There's no danger to us. He's just lying there. As I'm not a doctor, my moral obligation is to pick up the phone and call the ambulance, right? Because I can't do any more, but that's just most, that's all I can do. And as a stoic, if I try to be the brave and courageous soldier that people think stoicism is about, I could kill that man, literally. My, my lack of knowledge is so bad that I would literally kill him. So they would say, well, where's your temperance there? You're not trying to be the brave, you know, Spartan warrior here. You, you, you just, you've just got an obligation to save his life. So if you try to interfere with him in any physical way, you'll kill him. Now, if you come across the same man and you're a doctor, you have entirely the same moral obligation to do all that you can to save the man's life. However, what you do should be entirely different, entirely different to picking up a phone. And, and so this emphasis on personal responsibility isn't about not caring for the wider community, but it is that if we all did this, then that is the best way for humanity to flourish. So that's the entire, in fact, it's the entire purpose of Stoicism. Right. That's the entire purpose. I mean, there's a caveat to the doctor example, because the doctor example, also you need to ask yourself questions like, am I tired? Have I just done a 24 hour shift? Because if the answer is- Did yes, I just... stab him? <laughs> that would be a different, different, entirely different- uh, That would be a thing. different thing. That would be a different thing. But in terms of being tired, for example, you would have a situation of going, if I'm too tired to help this individual, even though I'm a doctor, I shouldn't. It's mm. not wise, it's not self-controlled, it's not courageous, it's not just. These are the four stoic virtues I've just told you about. It's not appropriate. So the stoic life is what is appropriate to be the best human being I can be. So in that case, when you're absolutely knackered, it is no longer appropriate for you to try to interfere in, a, in a, again, trying to save this man's life. So your, your call would be, who, which doctor, who, who do I know that lives nearby? Can I get a doc friend of mine who's a doctor who lives on this street? Yes. And you'd call him instead of necessarily, you know, you call the Amazon, you'd call him. And that's what stoicism is about. It's not about saying, like you said, okay, it's beyond my control. I'm too knackered. I have nothing. I can't do anything. I'll wash my hands. Uh, that's not the case. It's to do everything that you can within reason to save that man's life. Okay, that's great. Then I'm going to do this. Uh, like I can almost picture the YouTube video if we ever put these conversations up on YouTube, which would be philosopher demolishes five myths on uh, stoicism. We can definitely do that separating yourself from your emotions it actually means that you don't get involved in social change because you don't feel each other people's pain you don't get angry about things you disconnect from the world i mean people have, people have argued that and they've all tasted the stoics are wrong because anger makes you want to go and do you know go on a march for example and the stoics would say actually they say that anger is a temporary madness so you don't need to be angry to bring about social change because we don't have concepts in stoicism called selfish or altruism. They don't exist. Because selfish is the idea, for example, oh, I can't come to your show today, Sanderson, because I have a headache. And you're like, oh, how selfish? You didn't even like, you, you just didn't even turn up. The Stokes would say, if you cannot do the best job you can do in your role, then you should tell Sanderson that you have a headache. You should tell him with time, but you should tell him and say, look, I'd rather talk about stoicism in another day where I can actually think and give value to your audience. 
So why? It's not selfish because it's appropriate. The same thing in altruism. Altruism is doing something that you don't have to do, but you do it anyway. In stoicism, that doesn't, that doesn't hold up because you say, if you have to do it because it's the appropriate thing to do, then you should do it. There's nothing appropriate that you shouldn't do. And there's nothing inappropriate that you should do. So this, I know this sometimes uh, if you're in a romantic situation and someone asks for it, you know, this can be a little fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, what, what on earth was that? I don't know. That's some new character that I've got. I think you're doing the, the chat that I, I, I read on a, on a, like a weekly basis of you say that and people say, well, what happens in this situation? What would be disturbing? What, and what happens if this? And you say, well, it depends again on who you are. It's why in our, in our book, Leonidas and I say, you are the best person to give yourself the answers. We don't know who you are. We can give you better questions. We can show you how to structure the questions so that you can solve your problem. But it's, an actually, it's, it's actually very much an anti-self-help book. And I often give this example on podcasts like, Anderson, how tall are you, by the way? I'm at six foot four and change, okay. but still shorter than my dad. So annoying. <laughs> I'm really six praying for the osteoporosis to sit in. <laughs> so if you're six foot four and I'm five foot five, we're quite, there's a quite substantial difference, which we could definitely tell on a plane. I acknowledge my height privilege. <laughs> and there is a privilege in the sense that people, uh, there is a privilege, but if people would say the self-help book, okay, Sanderson, what do you need to do to grab the toilet roll off the top shelf? And you're like, well, I stand there and I lift my hands straight in front of my face and I grab the toilet roll. I go, oh, well, I want to follow your self-help advice, Sanderson. I think it's great that you've managed to do that. What do I have to do? You stand in front of there, you put your hands in front of your face. I'm like, I've done that. I've not even hit the middle shelf. <laughs> right? So I'm like, no, you've just got to believe. you just got to believe in my advice. Follow my advice to letter and you'll get the toilet paper. I'm not getting it, Sanderson. I can't even see it. I can't, literally, I can't see it. Look, you just do that. The stoic would say, okay, you're obviously two different people. Go and get a stepladder and go and grab it. But only I can know that because you can't know when you're writing that self-help piece or giving me that piece, or especially whilst we're talking now, you don't know how tall I am. So that's why we say that we don't give answers because the Stoics didn't give answers. Epictetus says like, grammar is important and grammar will show you how to write a letter, but grammar will not tell you whether you should write a letter. This is also Discourses 1.1. For people who haven't listened to the podcast before, so the Life on This uh, project comes out of starting a uh, sort of movement of non-religious congregations and then going, having sort of done, started with the practice, going, oh, actually, what are the, what's the framework which went behind that? And so we looked at, and then when you start to do that, you've got to go, well, there you want to go and be able to give advice so that people might be able to replicate this and go and set up their own community. And then also, or if there's no community nearby, someone could go and, okay, what are the principles that you put into action so that you get the benefits of the spiritual life if you're not religious? And it's really hard. It's really hard to do that because I'm, I'm not saying that I've got all the answers for whatever it might be, but yeah, you've got to try try to find that right way. And people get sometimes that can be challenging for people because they, they do want the, you know, what might that be? And so with us, we've gone and again, given sort of principles that you can go and sort of follow, which can go and lead into practices, but obviously the ones which you know, if sort of personal, uh, personal growth, so that you can live a good life can look so many different ways. And you can, and there can be some things which can work and whatever it might be, but it can't be a tick box exercise. That being said, 
it would be i'd really love to know like it's not saying everyone has to do this but what would be some of the practices that actually go into enabling people to lead a stoic life like you or put it into action because it's not just following people on twitter or getting that little book of stoic quotes to put by the loo like how can you actually go and this huge yeah, bridge the divide between the book and the uh, and the life yeah the probably the easiest way for people to, we have actually got 85 stoic groups across the world uh maybe 84 i was looking at this just like a piece of research we've got like 84 stoic groups the biggest one is mexico mexico as a country 3,100 people the biggest city is is new york uh, about 1,200 members of that group, and outside of like the outside of that, probably the second second one is is Moscow, with 1,112. Like literally, this is what I saw yesterday. It's right off the top of my head. So the one way to do it is to join a, a stoic group. So like I was talking to Los Angeles quite a lot because I'm working with them on projects, and they do walks every every Saturday and they do voluntary stuff. So like. London, for, if you're from London, for example, London was doing, an, after they heard me speak, they decided to do an environmental championing uh, kind of few couple of few months. So they went and did uh, work with allotments and they, I think they did rubbish collections in, in, the, in their local area. So it's really like to find out what to be stoic, put yourself in a situation first, right? It's, if you're sitting at home, it's quite difficult to be like, I want to live the stoic lifestyle. It's, it's very helpful, as you probably say as well, like, Go out in your community and see what is needed and see what, what speaks to you as a human being. So I can say, like, I'll give you the example we give in the book. So we make it, we break it down to how do I decide whether I should drink to drink a coffee that was made for me with milk if I am vegetarian, you know, vegan or vegetarian. Now would I or I, I don't like particularly the idea of drinking milk. So we give that particular example because being vegetarian or vegan isn't, isn't stoic because it would say, if you often say, it is never ever appropriate to drink milk, the stoics will say, how do you work that out? That's not, that's not entirely true, is it? So how do I decide, the person who's decided not to drink milk, whether I should take the milk that someone's offered to me? Well, firstly, I would say things like, do I want to drink this coffee? Because that's important. Do I want to drink it? Not particularly. Okay, but where am I? Okay. Mm. So Are I you at your mother-in-law's house? Am I at my mother-in-law's house? And your wife is like, "Come on, mate, you like exactly." Yeah, that's a really good. That, that's She's really a good dairy example. farmer. This is that's from a really her prize example. cow. That's that's the perfect example. Actually, that's the perfect example you've just given. So, if I chose not to drink the milk, and I cannot conspicuously pour it away in a way that no one, you know, that I don't cause a stir, then yes, I have a prize cow. So I'm asked the question: Is that cow being harmed? As it because my issue of not drinking milk in my case is that I don't agree with the commercial practice. And the answer would be no. So that would remove the reason why I don't drink milk. But also it's like, can I build community? Can I build community with this person by saying, I don't drink coffee with milk. I can't believe you did it to me again. So again, where I am is, what, how do I know anything about the cow? Is it possible to pour it away? Is it reasonable to pour it away? Am I really going to suffer, for example, am I lactose intolerant? Because that's a different question, right? If I'm lactose intolerant, and I have a different reason for why I don't drink milk. So it's like, who am I? Where am I? And what are my reasons for doing that? So this happens in every single situation. So a personal one to me was, I said to my own mum, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. However, I'm going to eat meat only if you cook it, only if it's beef, and only on Sundays. So she went from the being quite 
oh my gosh, to telling all her friends, that, oh, my, my son, he, oh, he's vegetarian, but he eats my meat, only mine. And she went to go, she was extremely proud. I mean, went to uh, Sainsbury's actually and bought more food than I could probably eat. I said, well, my appetite hasn't changed, but you know, she'd got out and bought loads of corn and vegetarian options. And if I just said to her, no, I'm not eating anything. I don't care that Sunday, Sunday is family time. I don't care that it's something that's really important to you to be able to cook me a meal that you've labored over because Sunday roast is quite a tough thing to do compared to like, you know, Monday to Saturday. And so she went from like, if I'd been like, absolutely, there's no way I'll ever eat any food again. I don't care about the values that you've put on it. She would have been actually anti this diet that I've selected. Instead when my dad was like, well, why go only eat it? That's not very manly. He's like, no, he's already said that he only eats my meat. We're not having this, we're not going to debate how manly he is, right? So that really helped. Are you, do you just really like beef? Is your mum suck at cooking pork and chicken? And you're like, <laughs> uh, actually, mum, I'll only eat, uh, and it's got to be good beef, only eat high quality beef for Kai. I mean, that could be, I mean, that could be a reason. That's not my reason. That's not your uh, reason. But, okay, but just checking. Say, people could say, yeah, is it, is it only because that, let's imagine the only dish she cooks for would be that one. That's also reasonable to say, but it's not because necessarily that's the only meal that she cooks for that everybody else in the family also thinks that and that's our family day again because stoics call it to build community and for me to tell my mum like i don't want to spare spend any time with you during this ritual it's a ritual at the end of the day then i'm not building community what i'm doing is i'm doing the opposite i'm building barriers i just find it so interesting the the emphasis on community because that doesn't come across at all in uh so much of the discourse in stoicism and you know i you know, i'm so familiar with it uh, sometimes from you know uh, listening to things from reading to things and it's not necessarily what comes across in that like one of my first things i read was I think seneca talking about exile and how you shouldn't need anyone and that you and it does come across as individualistic but it is it's yeah it's like reading your work and speaking to you it's really interesting uh, how you know how wrong that is could you give some other examples of how you've seen people put stoicism into action i mean people do a lot of journaling you've mentioned that you read meditations which was never meant to be published it was marcus aurelius the roman emperor's journal and it's right i don't know if if your audience know that but i, I didn't know that, that. They're probably all nodding along going, hey, you thick bastard. Why didn't you know that? So he, he never intended to write it. Whereas Seneca writes publicly, even when he writes a letter to his mother, it's public, right? This is Seneca for you. But, um, but Marcus Aurelius, it's a private, it's, it's his own personal diary. And it's funny that you say that it's not community-based because he does say things like when you attack, the, you know, when you kill the enemy and you feel joy over it, you're like, it's like you being a spider and feeling joy over killing a fly. That's how low you are, right? Because he talks about the fact that we're all humans and that we, there's, no, there's, no, there's no need to have joy in, in slaughtering the enemy. If your role, again, as the Roman emperor is to defend the borders, now that's a different, different question of whether he should be emperor, but he was and he had a role, then he had to defend and obviously he had to, he had to kill people in war, obviously. But he said, the minute you take joy, over destroying your enemy and you're the spider there to fly that's how that's how low you are so even people say okay it's very individualistic of course it would be because he's writing for himself firstly but if we look carefully at what he writes about he is writing about community ideas he is very cosmopolitan he says like if you 
if you've cut, you know, you've cut yourself off from humanity, you no longer are human, you no longer serve, right? The branch that cuts itself from the tree dies and withers. He talks about people like who, who don't care about the community being like pus. You know, so this, if you think carefully about what he's saying and you have the context of, yes, it is individualistic in a sense, because it would be, then he doesn't journal about how to become more famous. In fact, the first part of meditation, which you probably remember, he says, thank you so much for this person. Thank you so much for this person. Thank you so much for this person. He acknowledges, which he's the Roman, you think of how little business people acknowledge their workers these days. Like, oh, I'm, I'm a genius here. It's all me and I deserve every penny, even though I never developed like the factory and I never designed anything. And I showed my shares in this, you know, the FTSE, which I also didn't develop. This is the most powerful human being in the Western world saying thank you to these people who made me who I am. Without them, I am no one. How different would it be if people who I won't even name because we talk a lot about this in the book, actually, without mentioning their names, because I didn't want their name to go down in history, for at least for my part. How different it would, be, would it be is instead of valuing the shareholder who didn't sweat and bleed for the company to value the people who are working for you? How different would it be? How different would it be if they really valued the customer? So they don't just say, oh, we're LGBT, pro-LGBT in San Francisco. But when in Saudi Arabia, we don't know what LGBT is, but we'll fly the flag in San Francisco. So it's like you, you're saying something, but how pro-community are you if you say you're pro-LGBT? And that's great. That's wonderful. That's a step forward. But why do you only do it in markets that you are talking, you know, where you know you can make more sales? So Marcus Aurelius calls this out. He calls it out to say, look, we are a one cosmopolitan. That's what he talks about, like the, the God or the universe view. If you could zoom out and look down and see that you are part of, everyone is part of this big sort of noted essence and that we all interact as a, as a virtuous dance, then, then we would know what it was like to achieve basically Zeno's utopia of the Republic of everybody living according to reason, which is why I said earlier, there's no rules. There's no rules precisely because the one rule that is, is, is it reasonable? Is it pro-community? Is it pro-social? So like you say, what about traffic lights? Well, they'd ask the question, is there, is your wife in the back? Is she, is she in labor? Is there a car coming? Can you proceed at a speed that is reasonable? How far is the hospital? How far, how long do you think you have? So Zena was, there's, there's no need for rules if we all apply what's reasonable in this situation. And reasonable isn't what's just good for me, but good for everyone. So to use Marcus Aurelius, he says, what is, what is bad for the beehive cannot be good for the bee. That is a great uh, place to leave it on. So where can people go and uh, get your book, Kai? So I, I, I would say that the best thing that you can do for me is, is not necessarily buy the book. I think the thing to do is to ask your local library for a copy so that people who have lost their job in the pandemic can have a copy without paying for it, they can borrow it, which is a very communal thing to do. If you do feel the need though, however, after asking your library and please do ask your library because there are people who would like to read it and they have to make a decision about should they you know, eat what they need to eat today or should they buy the book? So uh, if you do want to buy it, then I would suggest your independent bookstore, particularly in the UK, because they were shut for a long time. Uh, before you try it everywhere else and again I won't name names but that would be my sort of if you're going to do that the list and if you like the book I do appreciate uh, a review where you bought it and with your friends but I, I'm not here to, to sell you the book that's kind of beyond, beyond the power.
There we go. Hey, Kai, this has been super fun. Uh, thanks so much for giving us your time. And uh, I am sure that our listeners are going to go and dive into more of your work and ideas later. How great was that chat? And I know I'm talking about a chat which I had, a chat that I was certainly a part of, but to discover that he was a Muslim convert, this guy who is a Stoic philosopher, one, that's unusual, then he is, you know, not coming from a big spiritual background in his life, and then he's decided to just get into it, do the uh, praying five times a day business. Oh, I just think it is so interesting to have someone who is following a path, which is all about go and make it up for yourself, and yet he's gone and found another part where he's also like, I'm also going to go and accept these arbitrary rules. So what a fascinating convo. And then also just was able to like dive a bit more into Islam from this fascinating point of view. I'm also going to share another podcast soon, which I've been sitting on for months because I wasn't able to get it off my laptop, which is going to be another interesting look at Islam with a great interlocutor, comedian Tez Ilyas. But I really love that. Uh, when he started mentioning Cambridge Eco Mosque, I was like, yeah, I want to discover more about them. I want to go and meet them. These guys uh, and gals and people in between uh, are going to be my cup of tea. So, yeah, please let us know what you thought about it. Uh, it's, yeah, stoicism, great. Stoicism with a late in life, seemingly random Muslim convert, even more interesting conversation. Uh, and yeah, I, and when I was hearing it, it really made me think that I want to go and get sort of more people who are involved at like that practice level of things, more people who are, you know, probably on that sort of individual interpretation to go and make this podcast even more applicable. But Often when I go and speak to someone, I instantly go and think, oh, I want, want to go and do more of that. I want to go and do more of that. So, uh, you know, that's uh, just me falling in love with the last thing I see, a quality that uh, hopefully won't get me in trouble in my marriage. Uh, that sounded way more worrying than I meant it to. It's all, it's all fine. Uh, and, uh, yeah, what has been going on the Lifefulness Project? Well, the exciting thing is we are going to go and do a festival. What? Yeah, we're going to go to Wilderness Festival. It's going to be the first time that I have performed live in 18 months. If you are going to be at the Wilderness Festival, come and say hi. It is exciting me so much. And yet at the same time, ah, suddenly we've been deltered uh, and, uh, you know, that thought of gathering in a consequence-free environment a la Austin Powers. Now it's just kind of a small cloud overhead. Uh, amusingly, I've been working on a video which is about all about public speaking. Ooh, if you want a great public speaker, hit me up. And it was all about how we needed to gather again and how it's really important to gather and started making it when it seemed that gathering would be uh, a something which is totally A-OK. -okay. But now uh, I think it's a sort of video which will make it seem like I'm coming down very much on one side of the culture wars. It's going to be like so retweeted by a load of maskless twats who are sort of protesting uh, science itself. Uh, and... Uh, if you are a maskless twat, lovely to have you here. All point of views, welcome. 
actually, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that we also have big questions about sort of like, you know, where does knowledge come from, et cetera. And, you know, pseudoscience is probably out of it. So, but you're still welcome. You know, as a person, I'm sure uh, we'd love you. Um, we do love you. So anyway, that's going to be the end of this noodling and canoodling. If you want to get involved in the Life on This Project, then, yeah, please go and uh, sign up to the community uh, if that's your thing. It's just such a wonderful group of people having really interesting discussions. And, you know, there's been always go sort of slightly push it, then slightly don't push it because it's not my main bread and butter thing. So it's about finding the right amount of time to dedicate it to it. But it, yeah, it's a really wonderful organic uh, sort of community which is emerging. And well, in case you don't know what we do, we meet twice a week to go, twice a month to go and discuss the topics which get brought up in these podcasts. And it's, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. So uh, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to say thanks to my co-host James, who uh, wasn't able to join us for this one. Thanks to the amazing producer Mav Shetty. Thanks to our guest, Kai Whiting. Go and track down his book. You'll find it in the notes. And then most of all, uh, not most of all, last of all, uh, thanks to uh, Roman Rapak and Miroshot who have made the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>